0: This time I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. If you're using a pew Bible, that can be found on page 599. Isaiah 40, and I'll read verses 3 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's word. Do keep your Bibles open there at Isaiah. We just recently moved into this 40th chapter. Of the book having spent our time in the first half and uh, the great temptation and the great exhortation of many was that we should skip the first 39 chapters and the reason being is that they are so utterly depressing. Uh, In those chapters Isaiah has been doing a demolition job of Israel uh, especially Judah and Jerusalem. He tells us that right at the very beginning, chapter one of Isaiah, in many ways resembles chapter one of the book of Romans. The familiar- similarities are, are quite impressive. But there in chapter one, God is making his complaint that actually drives this whole story back up to chapter 39. His, God's complaint is that his people have rebelled against him, that's fundamental. They've rebelled against him, verse 2 of chapter 1. Verse 4 of chapter 1, their problem is sin. They're a sinful nation. They're a people laden with iniquity. And they have forsaken the Lord and have despised the Holy One of Israel and are utterly estranged. That's the prophet's summary of the foundation of his whole and entire book, up to chapter 39. Everything else he has to say addressing the times in which he lives give historical credibility to that fundamental word at the very beginning. Everything he has to say about King Ahaz, for example, chapter 7. What he has to say about King Hezekiah, as we read the story as it builds up to its crescendo at the end of chapter 39, which finds the people of Judah and Jerusalem exiled, permanently exiled. An exile that by the time you get to the New Testament is not yet over. From chapter 40, Isaiah is not referring to any historical incident in his time Or even in the lifetime of those who will read his book. He's not referring to the return from exile. Because they never did. Oh yes, some people came back from Babylon. They came back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt their houses. They rebuilt the wall. They rebuilt the temple. They reintroduced temple worship. But they were still under Persian oppression. Then Greek oppression. Then Roman oppression until eventually the city is destroyed once again under the Romans. This was a permanent judgment. It was bad news. Isaiah keeps the bad news to the very end. Their sin, their iniquity, their war with God would end up in the loss of the land, the city, and the temple. Finito. Finally, that's it, the story. And then we come to chapter 40. Isaiah is reaching beyond his time. He's reaching into the future. One voice is heard at the beginning of chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is God's voice that is speaking. And this voice of God brings a message of comfort, a message people were still reflecting on when the Lord Jesus came into the world. You can read about it in the early chapters of Luke's gospel. The people are still waiting, still waiting. Eight hundred years later, they're waiting for the comfort, the consolation of Israel. The same Greek word is used as is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This word of comfort addresses the problem. It addresses the problem of their iniquity. Their iniquity will be pardoned. It addresses the problem of their sin. Their sin will be removed. It addresses the problem of their hostility towards God and God's hostility towards them. Their warfare will be accomplished. That's the good news message. We looked at that last time. Now, when we come to verse 3, we're now going to look at how this message is communicated. This message is accomplished in history. In verse 3, there's a human voice, or at least a creaturely voice that is heard. In verse 1, God is speaking. Verse 3, a creature is speaking. Is it a a cherub or a seraph? Is it an archangel? Is it a human being? In the New Testament, John the Baptist is at least one of those who speaks this way. His task is to speak about preparing the way of the Lord. But, but you notice that the voice is left unidentified because that voice is really unimportant. All it is, is a voice Even when John the Baptist comes along, you remember he he insists that the messenger is not the important one. It is the message and it is the content, the subject of the message that is important. And in the language of John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. Luke, when he is reflecting on this passage, sees the voice as John the Baptist, but also the entire Christian movement by extension. And the principle remains the same, that the messenger, be it a seraph, or a cherub, or a prophet, or a minister of the church, or the church of God as one whole confessing body, whoever they are, the messenger is unimportant. It's the message. It's the subject of the message that is important. As a little boy, you know, I wanted to be a minister. One year, I went to a party in our church. I don't know if it was a Halloween party or a Christmas party. I can't recall. I don't think it was the Halloween one. I remember one Halloween one I won the prize. uh, My next-door neighbor and my mother dressed me up as a bag lady and sent me down to church. And as I walked into the church in the narthex, the minister was there waiting with his dog collar on, and he directed me towards the ladies' changing room. Didn't like to argue with him, so I went in that direction. And when he'd gone, I snuck into the men's. But, but, uh, and I won the prize, by the way. And nobody knew it was me at all, which was just as well. It was very embarrassing. I think it was another one of these. Anyway, one of these meetings, I, these parties, I snuck out the party, and I went into the sanctuary. Sanctuary, th- this shape, exactly this shape. A bit smaller, not much smaller. And I sat in the minister's chair. The power chair. (laughs) And I noticed that just underneath the lectern, there were some words carved in wood. Sir, we would see Jesus. Any idea that I had, if I had that idea, that there was something special or important or, particular about being a minister of the gospel was deflated at that moment. And I realized at that moment, as a little boy, that to be a preacher of the Word of God was only to be a voice, and that Jesus, the subject, was to be the center. And this is precisely, of course, what Isaiah is teaching us. A voice cries. It doesn't matter who it is, unimportant who it may be. What you need to hear is what the voice is doing. And this is what the voice is doing. The voice is, first of all, announcing the coming of God. Look at verses 3 and 4. I remind you that verses 1 and 2 are bracketed by a double comfort they receive from God's mouth comfort comfort my people says your God and a double blessing they receive from God's hand she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins in his grace their warfare that is the hostilities between God and man and man and God have been resolved have been accomplished Iniquity has been pardoned. Sins have been removed. So he's introduced this idea of forgiveness, of pardon, of salvation. And the big question is, how can this salvation be achieved? How can it be? How can it be that God is able to offer comfort to multiple offenders like these people and like we who are here, has God just changed his mind about our sin? Has he chosen to disregard our iniquity? Has a coolly jud- judicial judge simply decided to close the case? Does he have rather a, more, a program of moral recalibration for humanity to follow? Is there a 12-step program that might help me? Or is it that the sufferings of these people have led him to cancel out their guilt? Or is it that somehow people are able to save themselves? Look at the answer that's provided. The answer to this issue is, how is God able to do this? Well, the answer is that someone is coming. Who is this? Is it some great man or woman of the world Is it a great philosopher like Plato or Socrates or Aristotle? Is it a religious figure like Buddha, Confucius or Mohammed? These men are are respected, revered, followed by many people in the world and without being disrespectful to any of them they are not what the prophet leads us to expect. We are to expect a royal figure because the whole language of preparing the way and making straight a highway is the kind of language that would be used in the ancient world of the preparations made for a royal figure to come visit the land and the people. It was customary in those days that you would send people ahead of you to make preparations for the arrival of this great royal figure. We were living in London one occasion President Bush came to visit London, and I noticed the activities in preparation. I noticed that they were out. They were cleaning the roads. They were repaving roads that needed repaved. They were filling potholes in the roads. They wanted the president to have a smooth ride when he came into the city. They were getting rid of the graffiti. They were cleaning up areas of the town that had never been cleared up before because he was going to pause on his journey to visit somewhere there. When you got to the mall leading up to the royal palace where he would meet the queen, it was a a wall of American flags right down the mall as far as you could see in preparation for this great figure as he came. That's the language, that is the imagery that's being painted here. Prepare the way, make straight the highway for this figure that has, that is to come. And who is this figure? Well, this royal figure that we are to expect is royalty to a degree beyond anything that you could comprehend or imagine. This figure is a divine figure. It is the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make a highway for our God. Here is Here is the covenant Lord, the the Lord who introduced Himself to Moses and to Israel. Here is the God of Israel. Here is the God of creation. Here is the Lord God, and He is coming on a royal visit to His people. In the New Testament, when Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is reflecting on the message that he's received from gabriel the archangel you remember zechariah won the lottery and got to act as a priest in the in the innermost part of the temple it was not something he'd probably done in his entire life he was just lucky that day he'd been chosen by lot luke tells us to be in there and as he's in there you can imagine that he's taking seriously this is the high point of his career to be in there offering incense in the holy place. And as he's in there offering the incense, he's tasked to offer incense on behalf of the people. It represents the prayers for the people of God. And the people of God are on his mind. And then the angel appears to him and says, Here's the answer to your prayers for the people you're going to have a son. And Isaiah uh, or Zechariah gets the message as he has been reflecting on this chapter of Isaiah because we know that, that he and his wife Elizabeth were among others who were waiting for the comfort of Israel. And you can imagine that's what that the intent of his prayers had been. Oh Lord, it's been so long. We're still in exile, even in exile in our own land. Oh Lord, when will your comfort that you promised? through Isaiah, come to us. And you know that that's how he understands it when he goes on to speak to his child. And you, child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High and will go before the Lord to prepare his ways and give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And he understands the significance of what is occurring. That his son is preparing the way of the Lord. He goes on to say, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. What Zechariah understood, what Isaiah is saying is this, that the way in which God will bring the comfort of the gospel The good news of warfare being over between God and man, of iniquity being pardoned and sin removed, is a walk on part by none other than the Lord God Himself. And that is precisely what will happen. You see, in part one of Isaiah, he's been preparing us, hasn't he? He has been throwing out there this Idea that God is going to bring from the house of David a, a king who will reign over david 's throne he 's a human figure, a human king is going to come. You remember Isaiah chapter nine? We, we read it often at Christmas time, but in, a, in that chapter there 's this bringing together of these two ideas that, that God is coming, but a human leader is coming to us. a child is born to us a son is given that 's very human, a very human birth. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will take over the reign and rule over the people of God. And his name, singular, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over Jerusalem's kingdom to establish it and uphold it forever with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, what Isaiah has predicted now is going to take place. The Lord God, the divine Lord God, is going to come visit His people. And it raises the question, how can this be? How can this be? And the answer of the New Testament is this. He who was by very nature... God, who did not think equality with God something he needed to go for or grasp for because it was his already. He, the language of Hebrews, who is the very radiance of his Father's glory and the exact imprint of his being. He who was the eternal word through whom the universe was made. The Word, who is God. The Word, who has always been face to face in perfect fellowship with God. The Word became flesh. Hallelujah. And ultimately, the way prepared and the highway made, and the Lord God coming, occurred in this way. That when the fullness of time arrived, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. And you see, this is what separates Christianity from any other religion or philosophy. Other philosophers like Buddha and Confucius and Aristotle and Plato have said many great and helpful things. But Christianity does not proclaim another prophecy, nor does it proclaim another prophet. It proclaims that God, God himself, has visited his people. It is not that, you see, people have found a way to approach God or or by their speculation or research or human achievement built a way to God. No, it is that God has come. God sent forth His Son. The Word was made flesh. The message of Christianity is that 2,000 years ago, God visited this planet. He entered a world that is familiar to us. He entered This world as a baby conceived supernaturally and born naturally to Mary. He came to bring the consolation, the comfort that was predicted by Isaiah. So that when they see the baby Jesus, when one man holds the baby Jesus, he knows that God has come and visited and brought comfort to the hearts of his people. He has brought the gospel, the double blessing of the gospel to his people. God is coming to visit. And even saying that raises incredible obstacles in our minds, millions of obstacles in our our minds to this happening. How can this be? There's just too many problems here. You have the Creator and you have the creature. You have the most holy God and you have unholy people. You have the infinite God and you have very finite. How can this ever be? Well, in verse 4, he says that everything, every obstacle you can imagine will be overcome by God when he comes. His coming will be unstoppable and irresistible. There may be nothing we can do to bring God down, but God can come down. When Zechariah is told that, that God is going to use his son to prepare the way of the coming for the Lord... Zechariah doesn't believe him. He says, Excuse me, would you like to see my birth certificate? My wife's medical report. You know, she is barren. We are way too old for this to happen. He said that to Gabriel. You don't really say that to an archangel. They're scary enough, but you certainly don't contradict them. Gabriel just reminded him of who he was, which silenced Literally, silence, Zechariah. You can read the story for yourself. But you remember the same angel came to Mary. And uh, he gave to that 17-year-old, perhaps, girl, this great word. Uh, First of all, he he greeted her. Even Gabriel's greeting scared the living daylights out of her. But then he responded to her, Mary, don't be afraid. That's don't be afraid of my greeting, what I just said. Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your woman bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. She's overwhelmed. She's How can this, there's kind of some practical details here. He says to the angel, there's some practical details here that you need to be familiar with. How will this be since I am a virgin? That's a fairly fundamental problem to having a baby. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born in you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Nothing is impossible with God Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. Whatever problem you think about, whatever problem you might imagine or conceive, every problem to God visiting us will be removed and He will come. You know, this is an even bigger problem than that. If you imagine the immensity of God and the smallness of If you imagine the fundamental problem that God is righteous and we are unrighteous, that the distance between God and us is an infinite metaphysical and moral distance between God and the creature. I mean, God's revealed enough of Himself for us to know that He is very good. The moral law given at Sinai the Ten Commandments proclaims to us how good God is and indirectly demonstrates to us how not good we are. How will that problem be resolved? And the first answer of this book, of this passage, is that it will be resolved by God Himself coming. God Himself coming to visit and His coming is announced. And then in verse 5, His presence, the significance of His presence is spelt out for us. When He comes, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. All flesh will see the glory of God. Now, this word glory is among a number of words that connect up both halves of this book of Isaiah. It's one of those words... That reminds us that this is Isaiah. It's got Isaiah written all over it. He uses this word 20 times in chapters 1 to 39. And 17 times in chapters 40 to 66. Now what do we mean by glory? Glory is a created created manifestation of the uncreated God. It is a physical manifestation of the spiritual God. It is a visible manifestation of the invisible God. So we began the service today with Psalm 19. What is this universe in which we live? This universe, if you consider it for a moment, the sheer enormity of our universe, the sheer enormity of our universe, which we are, we, we are just beginning to find out and we cannot get it into our heads. It's sheer enormity. It's complexity. The way it fits together. As we've gone on with our scientific investigations, we're discovering more and more and more how it fits together. Things we thought were redundant or disposable are in fact we're discovering absolutely vital to the joined-upness of everything in our universe. The psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. They're, They're a created, visible thing that manifests something of the uncreated and invisible God. And we are in awe of it. The flood was a visible demonstration of the glory of God. Israel, when they were at Mount Sinai, do you remember they just left Egypt? Moses had come as God's ambassador and as the mediator of the covenant he'd come to to Pharaoh's court do you remember and God demonstrates his power over all the gods of Egypt as he brings them down as he humbles them humiliates them that was A very created, obvious demonstration of the glory of God. When Pharaoh and his army, Pharaoh the last god and his army, are destroyed in the Red Sea. A demonstration of the glory of God. They get to Mount Sinai. And as they gather around Mount Sinai, God comes down to the top of the mountain. Do you remember? Well, you don't remember because you weren't there. But you remember hearing, I mean, if you've read... Exodus by Phil Riken, he explains all of this to you there uh, at length. You read that. And as God comes down there to the mountaintop, you remember that, you remember reading, that there's smoke and fire and noise, noise that scares the living daylights out of the people. So that Moses, they say to Moses, uh, you, you go You go and let God talk to you. We're scared. We really don't want God to come down to talk to us. We're afraid it will destroy us. You're expendable. You're the minister. You go. You remember Isaiah's vision? He goes into the temple. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. The glory of God is manifested in the temple. Wherever the glory of God is manifested, people are either afraid or they recognize their sinfulness, they recognize their distance, that infinite metaphysical and moral distance between themselves and God. Whenever the glory of God is revealed. I read uh, something on Facebook about uh, Leonard Nimoy who was the uh, Dr. Spock or Spock on Star Trek. And he was talking about when he was growing up in the synagogue that there would be this, in one of the feasts, I think, there, was this, uh, there would be this interaction. I don't know how common this is, but uh, a group of men in the, in the synagogue would go to the front and they would start to chant something. And the idea was everybody kept their eyes closed in case the Shekinah, the, the glory of God, came into the synagogue. And he said on one occasion that he peaked, And he saw these men reciting, whatever it was they were reciting. And as they're reciting it, and I'm trying to do this, and I'm not doing this very well because it's very difficult. They gave them the sign. It was Dr. Spock's sign. It was the first word in the word Shabbat or Shekinah in Hebrew. And he used that sign in Star Trek, in case you want to know. That's where he got it from. I've destroyed the story for you. The Shekinah didn't appear, but they did appear in the Holy of Holies. The glory of God descended in the Holy of Holies, and it would consume you if you went into the Holy of Holies. The glory of God. When they got to the Promised Land, when they got through the wilderness, they got to the Promised Land. You remember they were led by a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. When they built their temple, that pillar of cloud by day and fire by night rested on the Holy of Holies. For a thousand years it was a testimony to the reality, the supernatural reality of the God of Israel. And when they are dispatched to Babylon, Ezekiel in his vision sees the cloud of glory. Leave the temple. Go to the Mount of Olives. Turn left and disappear into the desert. The glory departed. When the exiles came back from Babylon, they came back to rebuild their city. They built their homes. They built their walls. They rebuilt the temple. They inaugurated the temple worship. And they wept because the glory never returned. They weren't even really out of exile. They were still under Persian domination, then Greek domination, then Roman domination. And by the time of Jesus, they're still waiting for God to comfort his people when his glory would return out of the wilderness back to them. And when Jesus came, you remember? He goes down to the waters of the Jordan, out into the desert of Sinai, and back to the temple in Jerusalem. The glory, the glory returned. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you see the glory of God when you see the miracles that Jesus performs. You see the glory of God when he goes into a a family home and goes into the bedroom of a daughter dearly beloved who has died. And when he says she's not dead, she's sleeping, everybody mocks him. They absolutely laugh him to scorn. And he leans over and takes the girl's hand and says, Honey, it's time to get up. And she rises from the dead. They saw his glory, the glory of God. And when he turns the water into wine, he was glorified. And you see, they'd learned a lot about the glory of God, this created manifestation of what God is like in Himself. If you look at creation around us, you see how big He is, how vast He is, how powerful He is. If you look at Him dealing with the gods of Egypt, how great He is. If you look at Him in the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle, how holy He is. And in Jesus you discover the same God, the same God of blistering holiness, the same God of absolute cosmic creativity, blazing beauty, inner splendor, moral excellence, eternal immensity. This same God can be utterly humble. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Imagine. Imagine the king coming, God coming as a little baby thing, dependent on his mother. Imagine it. And imagine his life as you look at him. That he speaks gently. To those who have been abused, speaks lovingly even to those who've sinned against Him. This is our God and that He is not beyond the work of self substitution on behalf of sinners in order that their sins might be removed and their iniquities pardoned, and the hostilities between God and humans resolved once and for all. The tragedy is, you know, the foolishness of men and women is that we are so preoccupied by nature with our own reality that we arrogate to ourselves ultimate reality and make ourselves the measure of all things, making ourselves the center of the world. That's why people find Christianity intolerable, because it spells the end of our self-centeredness. It puts God in center stage. Here's Isaiah here. I want you to notice Isaiah is not giving you one or two helpful little hints for you to take away this morning. Do this, this, and this this week. Sometimes we come to church, that's what we want. You know, happy lessons for living. Well, there are happy lessons for living in the Bible, but, but sometimes you need not those things. You need your view of God to be bigger than it is. Well, the last thing that we noticed in the text we saw the announcement of his coming, we've seen the significance of his presence, and thirdly, we see the extent of his reign. All flesh shall see it, the glory of the Lord, together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. All flesh. Here's Isaiah saying what he's already said, that this is not only just for Judah and Jerusalem, it's going to be for the world. The Gentiles will be able to witness the salvation of God. They will not just be observers, but together with Israel, they'll become part of God's people. He's going to say that. He said that. But he's looking even further forward. He's looking for the day when that glory of the Lord, which was revealed, Sinai, revealed to Isaiah in the temple. And you remember Jesus said, Isaiah saw my glory. Revealed when Jesus came into the world. There's a day coming when it will be revealed again, when every eye shall see him. When those who pierced him shall look upon him whom they pierced. There's coming a day when everyone on earth now and everyone who has ever been, space and time, will together, at one and the same time, all together, at one and the same time, will see the glory of Jesus. They will see him coming in the clouds of glory every eye shall see him the one who was by very nature god who made himself a servant and took on our humanity god will has decreed that at the name of jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess him to be lord to the glory of god the father that's where history is headed and says isaiah what was spoken on earth perfectly matches what was decreed and spoken in heaven. Here's how this passage hangs together. A voice cries, verse 3, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken, verse 5. A creaturely voice cries, and what that voice says perfectly matches what is decreed in heaven. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That means you can bet your eternity on it. It is guaranteed to you. God will fulfill this promise to you. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh shall see it. Together. Come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Everlasting God. Come down. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves under your mighty hand. We come in a sense to prepare the way for his coming by casting ourselves on your promise. By getting ourselves ready for that day that is to come. We pray, Father, that you would make us ready, that you would make us a people who are ready and waiting. In the language of the Apostle Peter, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. Help us to be ready and looking and watching and waiting and living and longing for that day when, as Jesus prayed, he would share his glory with us, that we would become part Of the glory, we pray this in his strong name. Amen.